I'm Aiden Flax-Clark, and you're listening to the New York Public Library Podcast. In 1996, Arundhati Roy published her first novel, The God of Small Things, to near-universal acclaim. It was one of the best-selling books by an Indian author in the world, and it also won the Man Booker Prize. She didn't publish her second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, until just last year. In between, she wrote a lot. Journalism, essays. She was also politically active in the anti-Iraq war movement and anti-Muslim violence in India. This spring, Roy came to the library to talk about her most recent novel, as well as everything else that she's been doing in the past two decades. And she spoke with Viet Thanh Nguyen, who shares with Roy the distinction of also having his first novel become a wild runaway success. Nguyen's novel, The Sympathizer, won a lot of awards, among them the Pulitzer Prize and the Carnegie Medal for Excellence. He began their conversation talking with Roy about a phrase that she's not exactly comfortable with. Well, it is a thrill and an honor to be here on stage with you. Um, I'm one of your 8 million fans. I believe that's the last (laughs) book sales figure that I saw uh, for The God of Small Things. And I've been following you since that book came out for the last 20 years. And... uh, I, I'm also an, a fiction writer, but also a nonfiction writer. And a beautiful I mean, fiction writer. Thank you so much. I need to write this down so I can put it on the next book jacket. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you know, I do fiction and nonfiction, so you know, I, I'm fascinated by your movement back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, and I also hope that I could become a writer who engages in politics as much as you do. And I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, I, I'm, I'm recalling a quote from the New Yorker Review of uh, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, where the reviewer said, you know, compares you to Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Salman Rushdie, and says that you all use magical realism uh, in order to depict the horror but not make it so tedious. Do you agree with that assessment of your writing? No, I, I, I just can't understand why people think I, I do magic realism, you know? I, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know where it comes from. I asked someone once, and they said, you know, you have a person who builds a guest house in a graveyard. I said, you want to see photographs? You know, like, I, I mean, people live in graveyards. In, in India, graveyards are obviously... Now, ghettos, only Muslims bury their dead and Christians, but Hindus don't. And so graveyards are now, uh, uh, you know, the the Hindu right ridicules them, contests, why should they be given this space? They should be forced to cremate their dead. And, And I spend a lot of time, actually, in graveyards where people live. In fact, uh, the, the cover of the book is a picture of a grave of an unknown person in, in the dargah of Nizamuddin Olia. And for years and years, there have been two women who sleep on either side of this, this grave, you know. So, um, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps the realism that we experience is magical for people who don't experience it, but, you know, to... <laughs> turn that into a genre of literature is to deny our reality in some ways, you know? I have a very peculiar background for an Indian. India is a society which, uh, from the outside, 
or from the hippie side, everybody looks at as this anarchic, Bollywoody, yoga, Gandhi, vegetarian, whatever. <laughs> but in truth, obviously, it's a very, very policed society. It's a society that lives in the fine grid of caste and ethnicity and religion and all that. And I uh, come, like most of the people in this book, uh, I, I, I don't fit into that grid because my mother uh, married outside the community, then got divorced, and not from a big city, you know. So, so we grew up, my brother and I, in this little village in which the God of Small Things is set, where, where it was made clear to me, especially to me as a girl, that uh, you know, no one was going to marry me, I didn't belong there, blah, blah, blah. Not asking me whether I wanted to marry them, which I didn't, but anyway. <laughs> separate. <laughs> so, so I grew up sort of on the edge watching all this, you know, and, and trying to understand it, uh, I think, at a time when, uh, when I was very, very young, you know. So, uh, they're, they're watching my mother, for example, who, who's like someone who escaped from the sets of a Fellini film. But you know, at that time, she was, she was very, uh, very, very harsh to me and my brother. But because there was so much harshness directed at her for the choices she had made, and so, as a very young person, you're struggling to understand things in adult ways, and, and of course, you misunderstand things uh, too. But so, so this, uh, this uh, began for me very, very early. I think there was a moment where you were also talking about when, after you had graduated from college, I think, and then you had gone off to, to Goa with a boyfriend at the time, and, and you, or maybe even before this, you were poor, basically, as a poor student, and then poor postgraduate life, that you really felt identification with people who were living in, in poverty, and that this had been something that you have never left behind, never, never forgotten. Yeah. Well, I, I was um, 16 when I sort of stopped going home, you know, and I used to work and I put myself through architecture school, and then by the time I finished, uh, by the time I was in fifth year, I knew that I wasn't going to be a architect, you know, building houses for rich people or whatever. So I became very interested in city planning and at, one, at some point I, I, I just gave up all of that and I used to earn a living selling cake on the beach. Then I got fed up of that, came back and I lived, uh, yes, in, even while I was in college in, in, in a sort of squat which was within the walls of an old monument. And to be, uh, you know, in a city like Delhi when you're 17, 18 on your own, and you, you see how the most vulnerable survive, and that becomes your basic uh, premise of trying to understand anything, you know. Uh, I, I, I used to live in, uh, in the Darga of close to the Darga of Nizamuddin Olia, which is where Tilotuma, one of the characters, lived, lives. And every morning <laughs> I used to have tea with all the beggars and derelicts, and we used to all gossip, you know, about things. I used to cycle to work 
And every day they would be like, oh, so you survived today because the traffic was so bad. And uh, I, I think it, you know, when you, when you, one of the greatest crises in India today is the fact that people don't know how to talk to each other. And I'm not talking about language. I'm saying that when you see, you know, the e World Economic Forum, the Prime Minister or the rich businessmen, you look at them and you know they don't even know how to go to a village. They don't know how to enter a house. They, they, the language doesn't exist anymore to, for the powerful to speak to the vulnerable, you know? When you listen to judges uh, in court, you know that they don't understand how... If, if, if you go to a village, like in the forests of central India, and you steal all the chicken and you shoot holes in, in the vessels, it sounds like a joke in New York, right? But there, it means you can just die of thirst because you can't go four miles and collect water and bring it back. You don't have shops to buy another vessel. You don't, ha you know, but in, in the Supreme Court, listening to the case of the mining companies versus these people, that's a joke because they have forgotten what vulnerability means. So this capacity for empathy, for great empathy, for a wide range of people and wide range of characters certainly marks your work, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But something else that you brought up in, in what you just said was your willingness to actually go out and talk to people. And I'm speaking as someone who hates talking to people. You know, I like sitting in a room writing. And, but you are someone who actually, besides doing that, also likes to go out and engage with people. And it seems like you know, one kind of a writer is the writer who writes alone, and, and another kind of writer is a writer who works, writes in solidarity. And I think that word has come up often in the interviews I've read of your work, that you see yourself as, as being not just an isolated voice, but as someone whose fiction and nonfiction is not supposed to represent other people, not supposed to be the voice for the voiceless, for example, but is working in concert with these social and political movements and, and all of that. Um, I don't know if there's a question here, but I just want to point it out that, that well, you're a different kind of writer <laughs> for doing that. Well, you know, it's, it's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, um, uh, sometimes I keep telling people I'm a social cripple. You know, like I can be here and talk to people, but like I find it very hard to go and have dinner with seven people or something, you know, that way. But more than talk to people, you know, I think, what I like to do is to listen to people, because people forget how to listen, you know, and and uh, and there's something there's something very beautiful about just listening, you know. Um, so it's not that I mean the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is not a book that's written in solidarity with anybody or any movement or anything like that, but it is. Uh, to me, uh, the fundamental desire of a writer to understand the terrain in which they write, you know? So, uh, I, need to, I, I need to know it intimately, and for that, I need to listen, you know? Which is not... Uh, uh, so, so, when I'm in Delhi, for example, people, nobody ever invites me for anything because they know I won't go, you know? Like, no marriage, no dinner, no this, no that, 
No. But these journeys into the forest, you know, uh, uh, the journey, uh, for example, spending weeks with the Maoists, like the footage that you saw of, of those women comrades, if the camera had panned a little more, I was there with them. And uh, sometimes you, 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 you come across the most unexpected things. There was a moment when all of us went to the river to bathe, you know, so there were these armed guerrillas, there was me, there were women farmers, all, you know, bathing in the same river, and you think what a moment that is, you know. Or late at night, uh, you know, when everyone's asleep, one of the comrades is busy on his solar-powered computer, so I asked him, what are you doing? So he said, I'm <laughs> writing a clarification. Then he laughed and he said, you know, we could publish like several volumes of clarifications. So, <laughs> so I said, what is the funniest clarification you've ever had to make? So he said in Hindi, he said, which means, no, brother, we did not hammer the cows to death. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was because <laughs> one, of the, one of the election promises by uh, the man who was standing for chief minister was that if he won the elections, he would give every indigenous person's family a cow. So when he won the elections, he, he was distributing these aged cows, right, to people. <laughs> so there were these cow contractors who were taking these old cows who would bloody die on the way and things. And then they decided the best way to get out of this tedious thing was to just say, the Maoists kill them, you know? <laughs> and that, so these guys are like from the forest saying, no, no, we didn't kill them. <laughs> so the thing is, you, you know, how do you, how do you understand the bizarreness of this, this place that I live in, all these languages, all this? It's only through, uh, you know, delightful listening. So uh, when, when people talk about free speech, some of us often say free speech and fearless listening. Mm -hmm. you know? Delightful listening. Uh, you delightfully listen to a whole panoply of characters in your book. Uh, now, that panoply of characters includes not just the revolutionaries and the freedom fighters and the downtrodden and so on, but also people who are not so necessarily nice. Uh, people like Garson Hobart and uh, Major Emrick Singh. I don't know if you want to tell the audience a little bit about these characters, but is it delightful to listen to, to people like that? Because I assume you have to all the time. Oh, it's fascinating, you know? I mean, Garson Hobart is a character, uh, he's called Garson Hobart because he plays that in, in Norman is that you, a college play that they're doing which never gets performed. His actual name is Biplob Dasgupta and he's, a, he's very much part of the Nehruvian sort of upper caste, secular, fallen now Indian state, you know, and he's a brilliant guy, you know, so for me, uh, writing Garson Hobart was, was like coming close to schizophrenia because he's the enemy that you don't want to have, you know, he's, he's a brilliant guy, there's no question of it, he's not easy meat, 
you know and and so uh, it was a game in a way you know uh, he's funny he's self deprecating and he has that the expansive ability to wait that the state always has you know to allow people to 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 let off steam and and it's it's wonderful the way he he'll tell us about about how kashmir is managed for example that uh, he says you know we 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 deliberately took the decision that every time someone is killed when these hundreds of thousands of people come out let them come out pull the army back let them let off steam and then they'll all go home you know and the the other thing he talks about is how when the insurrection began and it didn't have any leadership how do you how do you know who to watch you fund newspapers against yourself and then the voices will emerge then the resistance will have a face then you'll know who to get you know so he's a he's pretty brilliant guy you know and amrik singh amrik singh too amrik singh is a a captain a major in the the indian army who then eventually has to flee and guess where he comes to the united states <laughs> but he he's he's also a creation of the system you know he's not just a crazed killer he's someone who's given the latitude to do that work right and he and he plays you know and then when they're fed up of him they farm him off you know i mean you've talked about how in order to write your characters you have to love all of your characters which would include these two men who are scary each in their own different ways major amrik singh because he tortures and kills a lot of people and garson hobart because he seems to represent the security apparatus the guy who's not going to get his hands dirty but who's observing everything from afar as you're saying uh was it hard to love these these characters well love is love is a complicated thing right i mean you when when i say love them it doesn't mean love them like you know a lover <laughs> but love them because you lavish attention as a writer on them and that is the form of love a writer gives a character you know so yes it was very important for me and i and i uh, i mean it would be silly right if we just loved the lovely ones <laughs> you know <laughs> what would that mean well <coughs> i wrote an essay for the new york times you know a few months ago where i said i have to find empathy even for donald trump that was very hard for me to do <laughs> it still remains hard for me to yeah, do yeah but maybe know? it would be too boring to have him in a novel right you say you can't beat the reality show that is the <laughs> trump presidency um but the these two characters i just want to keep talking about them because i think their I fates like, are, are very like interesting that. <laughs> uh you know they meet conclusions could I, that are could i could i read a, a little mm -hmm. paragraph of garson hobart so that you you know who he is uh, i'm sure i can find it so this is this is garson hobart he's the only character who who who's in the first person he insisted on being in the first person his <laughs> suzerainty over me as a citizen so he's talking about 
he's talking about the time when he was a student, you know, in 1984. And he says, for a few days after the assassination of Mrs. Gandhi, mobs led by her supporters and acolytes killed thousands of Sikhs in Delhi. Homes, shops, taxi stands with Sikh drivers, whole localities where Sikhs lived were burned to the ground. Plumes of black smoke climbed into the sky from fires all over the city. From my window seat in a bus on a bright, beautiful day, I saw a mob lynch an old Sikh gentleman. They pulled off his turban, tore out his beard, and necklaced him, South Africa style, with a burning tire while people around stood baying their encouragement. I hurried home and waited for the shock of what I had witnessed to hit me. Oddly, it never did. The only shock I felt was shock at my own equanimity. I was disgusted by the stupidity, the futility of it all, but somehow I was not shocked. It could be that my familiarity with the gory history of the city I had grown up in had something to do with it. It was as though the apparition whose presence we in India are all constantly and acutely aware of had suddenly surfaced, snarling from the deep, and had behaved exactly as we expected it to. Once its appetite was sated, it sank back into its subterranean lair, and normality closed over it. Maddened killers retracted their fangs and returned to their daily chores. Normality in our part of the world is a bit like a boiled egg. Its humdrum surface conceals at its heart a yoke of egregious violence. It is our constant anxiety about that violence, our memory of its past labors, and our dread of its future manifestations that lays down the rules for how a people as complex and as diverse as we are continue to coexist, continue to live together, tolerate each other, and from time to time, murder one another. As long as the center holds, as long as the yoke doesn't run, we'll be fine. In moments of crisis, it helps to take the long view. So this is even before he's become a bureaucrat, you know? So part of the plot of the novel is that Garson Hobart, uh, Tilo, and uh, Musa, who becomes one of the Kashmiri freedom fighters, all went to college together. And there's a moment towards the conclusion of the novel where Musa and uh, Garson Hobart actually meet decades after their college years, and you know, obviously they're now on opposing sides of this political divide. And Musa makes a prediction. He says, uh, what, what India is doing to Kashmir uh, is going to lead to the self-destruction of India. And this thought stays with Garson Hobart. You know. And I'm wondering, is, is Musa deluded? Uh, is, is, is that actually what you think will happen? The internal contradictions of India will lead to its own destruction? Well, you know, I mean, in some ways it's already happening because um, India is a country which, from the day it became independent from British rule, August 1947, there has not been a single day when the Indian army has not been deployed within its own borders against, quote unquote, its own people, you know, whether it's 
Assam, Nagaland, Mizoram, or Kashmir, or Punjab, or Gujarat, Hyderabad. It's constantly at war. And again, I mean, if you look at who those people are, it's always indigenous people, Christians, Muslims, Sikhs, Dalits, you know, so there's this very militarized upper caste state at war. But now uh, what Musa is talking about is the fact that there are two, there are two uh, conflicts this book uh, has uh, in, in it, contains in it. One is the conflict in Kashmir and the other is the conflict in central India which you saw, the, 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 the battle against these big uh, mining companies, the f forests are full of paramilitary. And what has happened is very interesting, that in Kashmir, which is on the border, the army for now close to 30 years is gradually becoming an administrative force, like the police, you know, corrupt, bloated. And in Bastar, the police are becoming like the army you know, uh, um, gunships, helicopters, uh, grenades, you know, um, bombing, burning villages, all that. So gradually every institution is becoming completely corroded, completely communalized. And this is what Musa is talking about, you know, the fact that, I mean, for the first time in the history of uh, India, four judges of the Supreme Court came out and did a press conference saying that democracy is in danger. Uh, the killers who, who, who were convicted and sentenced to death for the mass murder of Muslims in Gujarat are all being released now in time for the next elections. So you see uh, uh, history books are being rewritten. Uh, everything is you know, slowly imploding in ways which are, which come from being able to absorb this kind of violence while continuing to maintain the hypocrisy of democracy, you know? I mean, there are other places where there's more violence, but they don't pretend, you know? I couldn't help when I was reading the Ministry of Utmost Happiness and, you know, reading the part about the self-destruction and then hearing you talk right now, thinking, could describe the United States in some ways, in terms of the erosions of, of democracy, for example, and the incapacity of the majority to see some of the things that this country is doing, both internally within its own borders and externally, which is even more invisible to so many people in this country. So going back to that idea of seeing and not seeing, there's a lot of willful not seeing in this country as well. Well, I mean, I, I don't spend much uh, time here, but I can see some parallels, you know. But at the same time, I'd be wary of, uh, I'd be wary of making direct comparisons, you know, because uh, in a way, what is happening in India right now uh, is something that was set into motion uh, at the turn of the, 18th and 19th century, you know, uh, sorry, the 19th and 20th century. And now uh, from the 1920s, there's been this organization called the RSS to which Modi belongs. It's an organization inspired by Mussolini and Hitler openly. Modi and many of his ministers belong. It is the most powerful organization in India today. It has hundreds of thousands of 
volunteers. It is not the political party that makes decisions. It is this organization. And it has sort of compromised all these uh, big institutions of democracy, you know. So this, what I see here is, is, uh, is elite institutions unable to deal with uh, a lunatic in the White House. Like you don't have the protocols, you know, to, to take him out or out of that place, you know. <laughs> but, but all the inst elite institutions are angry with him. Whereas in India, the elite institutions are with this program at the moment, you know. So it's, uh, you're seeing a situation where 150 mis million Muslims are being ghettoized, their economic base has been eroded. You're seeing a very militaristic police society, you know, you have laws like the Armed Forces Special Powers Act or the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, where now there are thousands of people in jail, you know. Uh, I've never been so uh, anxious about what's going on there, you know. And now we have elections coming up in a year and you can see that the government is trying to polarize, trying to create a situation where I mean, none of us really know how to respond because whatever you do, it deepens the polarization. Whatever you say, it deepens the polarization. If a, a man has been hacked to death and that video has been put up on YouTube, people are collecting money for the defense, legal defense of the murderer. The, the little girl who was raped in Jammu, she was raped, she was held in a temple, she was bludgeoned to death, but it wasn't just these five men who did it. There are thousands of people, including women, who are marching in support of that, you know? So that is the, the, the thing that one can't wrap one's head around now, you know? The rot that is setting in where three people, uh, two godmen and then the rapist of this little girl, you had to have, lockdown in states because people are going to protest because the men who are convicted of rape are being supported by, by, by their followers, you know? How do you think about that? You've been confronting these political issues in India since at least 1998 uh, when the end of imagination came out and you were dealing with India's nuclearization. It's been 20 years where you've been actively political as a writer, uh, as, a, as an intellectual, as an, as an activist. Uh, and I'm just wondering if it's exhausting. Um, because I, I think about something that Pankaj Mishra wrote in The Guardian, you know. He was saying, well, people in the West, audiences in the West, expect writers from these so-called third world countries, or I don't know if India can even be called that, but non-Western countries to be political. You know, we, we, we look at other countries and we see these terrible things happening, and, and the West expects writers to be political. But Mishra points out, and I think he's right, that, that in places like the United States and England, writers have the luxury of not being political. That's a whole separate issue. But do you feel that this, this is something that, uh, that you have to confront, this, this demand to be explicitly political? And is it exhausting? 
No, not at all. You That's know, good to hear. I mean, it's not yeah. exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> it's not exhausting. It's it's uh, it's exhilarating. You know, it's it's important to be in the world, and uh, uh, it's not as if I do it as a duty. You know, and when I want to withdraw, I do, as I did when I was writing in the last few years. When I was writing this, uh, you know, it's it's not all all about current affairs. You know, it's about deepening your understanding. And so, to me, uh, it would be exhausting to keep quiet and to, you know, um, sit. <laughs> you know, yeah, I would. It. it it would be exhausting and it would be terribly boring, you know. I was just speaking to some young students who asked me, how do you deal with the, you know, the trolling and the hatred which many of us have to deal with. I said, you know, imagine if they liked me. Like, how horrible would that be, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you you got to be up for it. I'm up for it, you know. It's not, it's not, we're not trying to, uh, be cute here, you know. So um, it's a it's 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 exhilarating because when you you know, for instance, uh, when I write the political essays, uh, they are immediately translated into so many Indian languages. I remember when I wrote "Walking with the Comrades," I finished copy editing it at midnight in the office of Outlook and. I came to speak in San Francisco, and while I was speaking, people had already made it into a book and were distributing it at the back, saying, with permission of the author. I was like, really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it's, a, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it belongs to everybody, you know? So people ask me, how do you get feedback for your work? I said, I just stand at the traffic lights, you know? <laughs> it's, so it's a it's 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 the way it should be like an author and people and it's like a direct shot into the veins you know there's no arbitra arbiters in the middle you're not sitting around waiting for good reviews or awards or whatever it is you know those are sub I mean, those don't matter that much. <laughs> so I think someone called you a writer-activist in one of your interviews, or I don't know what it, what it was, but you said, no, you object to this term writer-activist because it seems to apply, imply that a writer should not be an activist, and you're identifying yourself as, as one of these writers who's... That, I said that uh, I, w I just wondered where this word activist came from, like who started it, you know? <laughs> because there was a time when writers that's what writers did. They, they engaged with society, they argued, they fought, they were political. And uh, this word activist is a slightly strange word, don't you think? I mean, I, I said it's like calling me a sofa bed <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know? why, why does it, it suggests that writers should be uh, in some nursery, you know, playing with their stuffed toys while the real world goes to work, you know? So you think that there was a time in the past when writers on the average were more engaged than they are now, whether it's India or the West? I, I wonder what it is about, you know? But yeah, sure, I mean, uh, maybe it's... Maybe at the time when uh, our concerns were whether or not we would be beheaded, 
we were more serious than when the concerns are whether or not we'll be on the bestseller list or you live between literary festivals and bestseller lists or something like that, you know, where the market has begun to play a part in, uh, you know, even in genres of writing, like you're quickly wanting to say, what is this book about? Can you tell me in three sentences? You know, which shelf should I put it in? And so on. So I, <laughs> I had this very funny experience at a book fair in India where the algebra of infinite justice was in the math section. The <laughs> ordinary person's guide to empire was in the travel section. Listening to grasshoppers in the entomology section. God of small things was in religious section. So, <laughs> but yeah. You know, maybe on that note, if you want to take <laughs> questions, <laughs> take questions. <laughs> I can't beat that answer. Uh, do you want to take questions from, sure, from the audience now? Yeah, yeah, I think Paul has a few. Well, the, the first question is for you. Oh, really? Okay. How do you engage people to tell you their stories? And the context is, my parents are also Vietnamese refugees, but I don't know their story. Well, specifically in the Vietnamese context, all you really have to do is listen because Vietnamese people can't shut up. Uh, <laughs> at least that's my experience growing up. Um, the problem is, of course, that they are not necessarily telling you the stories or the answers that you want to hear or they're not responding to the questions you want to ask because they're not listening back. So, the, the <laughs> I'm sorry. I have problems with Vietnamese people, you know. Uh, I know them very well. Um, but seriously, I mean, the idea of listening is, is absolutely crucial to, to being a writer, uh, whether it happens to be you listening to someone next to you on the airplane, you know, you, you get a real exposure to human nature and the realization that most people want to talk, but they don't want to ask questions and listen. And likewise, in the context of growing up in an immigrant or refugee uh, environment, I think it is very difficult because it often is the case that your parents don't want to tell you what you want to what you want to uh, learn specifically, but uh, you listen long enough and you'll hear something. And sometimes you hear something in the absence of them saying something. So I mean, the, the silence is as actually crucial as what they're talking about. And so being able to understand where that silence is coming from is, is important too. I remember when I was 11 years old, my mother told me, you know, Paul, we have two ears and one mouth. I think probably because I wasn't listening. <laughs> but I think this question is for both of you. Can you share a hopeful story? <laughs> no, I, I could just stop there. That's a pretty good question. Could you share a, can you share a hopeful story of successful activism against great odds, adversary, for this time of challenge and polar polarization? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think for many of us uh, who are people of color or who are immigrants or refugees, we feel that this is a real moment of crisis because there's rising xenophobia and anti-refugee and anti-immigrant feeling in this country. And it is bad, but this is not new. You know, this is cyclical. It's only been in the last 50 or 60 years where this country has actually been open to a more equitable immigration and refugee policy and have welcomed people from, from different kinds of countries here outside of, outside of Europe. And so I look back upon history and think we actually have made a difference. I mean, the various kinds of social and political movements that have come before have actually shifted the landscape. So for example, when I was in high school, I went to a primarily white high school 
the handful of us who were of Asian descent. And we knew we were different. And every day for lunch, we'd gather in a corner of the campus and we'd call ourselves the Asian Invasion. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> by the time I finished college, I was part of the Asian American movement. And that, that, that idea of, of just this one particular movement goes back to this notion that, that, that Asians in this country have been attacked have been discriminated against, have been subjected to all kinds of violence, all kinds of exclusion since the, the middle of the 19th century. And yet out of that, they were able to build a variety of social and political movements that coalesced so that now, you know, we have something called Asian Americans, which is progress in a lot of ways. So that's the hopeful story. But with every progress, there's also changes and, and setbacks. So now, you know, in the 1960s, becoming an Asian American was about being anti-racist, anti-war, anti-imperialist, about solidarities with uh, decolonization movements and other peoples of color in this country. And now that may still be true for some, but a lot of Asian Americans are against affirmative action and they're against further immigration and they're against refugees. So the political shifts have opened up other kinds of political battles that we still need to fight. And that's, that's, that's kind of disappointing, but it's also an outcome of the, of the positive results of the struggles that have been happening for the past century and a half too, that we're now free to be jerks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a question here, which is the shortest question ever asked. It's, it's just one word. Um, Trump, question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I was speaking at the Brooklyn Public Library yesterday and somebody asked me this question in a longer format. <laughs> <laughs> this had the virtue of concision. <laughs> yes, but, but what I said was that you know, um, one of the dangers that we do face today is for us to get so anxious about Trump and so anxious about Modi that we forget that they emerged through a sewage system. <laughs> and we got to look at the shit, you know? <laughs> so we, we, have to, we, we have to understand that uh, uh, you know, to over-personalize things also doesn't get us anywhere. You know, he, he uses up so much oxygen, so much oxygen, you know? And uh, so, I don't know, maybe there should be a, 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 a committee of doctors or something put in charge of the commentary, and then everyone else can do... You know, I mean, imagine imagine just losing sight of... Uh, a system that created him, you know, he's like, uh, I, I, I think he's like, come out of the toxic effluent of a system, you know, which neglected whole populations, and then he emerges as their savior. Modi, on the other hand, is the system, you know, so they're not the same in any way, but still, I would not, I mean, uh, to me, as I said, the RSS is the system there. You know, they can replace Modi with someone else any minute. But so I would say 
we should we should uh, we should allocate us a little space for Trump, but we shouldn't spend all our energy talking about him all the time. <laughs> well, I, I I would say you know besides Trump question mark, the other part of the question should be Obama question mark um, because. <laughs> I think a lot of, for example, just talking about writers, a lot of writers have become radicalized in the age of Trump. You know, they're shocked, shocked that we could have a country that could produce Trump. And they should be shocked, but they weren't shocked that we had a country that could produce Obama Who had either. a kill list. Yeah. And so for me, when we talk about the system, it's important to understand that, that Trump is, is not a surprise. I mean, he's an outcome of that, that America is designed to produce. America has been Trump since the founding of this country. Um, and... <laughs> It goes, it goes in cycles, yeah. you know, and so we are completely a country that can elect President Obama in one cycle and President Trump in another cycle. These are both facets of the American contradiction that are born out of genocide and slavery and, and the desire to forget those kinds of things, which leads us to lionize President Obama. Um, but they're both facets of a system that, you know, are part of American imperialism are part of an Amer American military industrial complex uh, that you know, the Indian Army deploys within its own borders. The US Army and exactly. Air Force and the military deploys on 800 plus bases around the world. We're, we're much more dangerous than India and yeah. Modi, I think. Um, but focusing on Trump does allow us to forget that by blaming him when actually it's, like you're saying, the system. And simply electing a democratic president in the next cycle, which I hope we do, and in, isn't necessarily going to solve I anything. Mean, in, uh, if you just look at how many, I mean, Vietnam, Korea, all of that, even just now, post 9-11, how many countries have been destroyed? And what is this myth about radical Islam, you know? I mean, Syria is not radical Islam, Libya is not a radical Islam, Iraq was not radical Islam. So radical Islam is, is, is the best friend. And uh, radical Islam is the enemy that they would like to have, but actually what is being destroyed is something else. You know? Arundhati, I'm going to put you a tiny bit on the spot. You were aware that, that Viet is a writer, and I, I was thinking that you might ask him a question about his work. I was, I thought that your book was fabulous. And uh, I, I was just uh, so happy. The part where you write about, uh, well, the Hamlet, <laughs> which is Apocalypse Now. But I think, you know, uh, where you say, where you say uh, he who has the means of production owns the means of representation. And that, has been so important in constructing a completely false narrative of the history we're talking about. So uh, I, I wonder if you want to talk about that a little more. Well, that was a very important passage in the book for me. Uh, and I, uh, my, my publicist is in the audience. You make sure you wrote down that she said my novel is fabulous. Okay, just, just make sure you do that. Uh, and there, there are all these witnesses. Okay, but. That line is very important because I think that uh, one of the problems of being a writer in this country is that uh, it's easy to lull yourself into believing that your representation is going to make a difference. 
and it can, you know, your novel or your film can make a difference and all that kind of stuff. But unless you actually own the means of production, the difference that you make is only gonna go so far, right? So for those of us who imagine ourselves as political writers or committed writers, and I fantasize about myself in that way, I always have to sort of think about that other dimension that in order for a true transformation to take place, we have to, have, we have to own the means of production as well. There's not gonna be true justice in representation until there's true justice in production. And that's where revolutions actually take place. And so in the novel, I just wanted to deal with that in just one industry, which is the Hollywood industry. And of course, what I'm talking about in the late 1970s is still with us today in the contemporary moment. It, just if we're talking about Hollywood, that uh, here we see basically the... the they won uh, the war, right? They won the war. They won it's, the war. It's the, it's, it's, the U.S. doesn't need an official ministry of propaganda. It's got Hollywood yeah. that's advancing this kind of American ideology. We don't need Hollywood producers forced to make propaganda. They just already agree with the same ideology that is inhabits the Pentagon. And that's what I wanted to illuminate in that but passage. What, but what I, I must tell you is that uh, in India, you know, and especially in Kerala, which was of course the first ever communist government in the world, it played, it, it had such a huge part in our imagination on the other side, you know. So I remember uh, the first debate that I ever did when I must have been nine or something, and, and it was all about the running dogs of imperialism, <laughs> and you know, Vietnam, eh, the, the chant in the 1960s was, Amar Gam, Tumar Gam, Gam means village, Amar Gam, my village, your village, Amar Gam, Tumar Gam, Vietnam, Vietnam, you know? So there was a lot of the I mean, I grew up with the other side of, of, of the propaganda, if you like, but it was, uh, it, it, it was, I was enraged by ap ap Apocalypse Now, you know, and, and I remember, uh, you probably remember the beginning of The God of Small Things is about, you know, a little country further east with rivers, rice fields and communists was being bombed enough to cover it with six inches of steel. So I, I did grow up with this idea that I was a gook, you know, too. It was, uh, but, but, but I, I mean, whatever, you know, they have their means of production, but your book is very, very important. Well, I, I think about how in Ministry of Utmost Happiness, I think that you're talking about the Kashmir Revolution, but you're also sort of foreshadowing some of the possible outcomes of that, that you know, there, there, there is this, this way in which all revolutions ins, you know, inspire. And, you know, Vietnam inspired people all over the world. And the, Vietnam, the Vietnamese revolution inspired people all over the world. And the, one of the great sadnesses of that is, is the outcome of that revolution wasn't yeah. so great. Yeah. You know, I mean, for the, for the imagination yeah. of the global left, the Vietnam, Vietnam is frozen as this moment of revolutionary inspiration. And the actual Vietnam, the country, it's far from revolutionary today, you know, it's just a hotbed of global capitalism yeah. in which the Communist Party is basically a capitalist party. And so I think there is some, some, some warning in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness about that because you talk about how the, 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 the freedom fighters, the line is ever hardening and yes. ever shifting further mm. and further yeah. left and there's no more room for compromise and I can sort of see and where this says, is going. And then you know, first victory and then annihilation of ourselves because we will 
destroy ourselves in the fight, even if we win. You will destroy yourself and we will destroy ourselves. And yet, it's so important to believe that revolution is possible, you know? And, and uh, one of the saddest things in India now is just that the idea of, all, all over the world, I mean, the idea of justice, that huge and beautiful idea of justice has shrunk to a discourse on human rights, which is not the same thing. The, the shriveling of language itself is, is, is a horror, you know? Before, before you, we, we end with Arundhati reading a passage in closing, what influence has Salman Rushdie had on your work? Hmm. Well, uh, Salman Rushdie uh, is a person who, I, I mean, I do think that he's, you know, I, I, there are books he's written which have been greatly influential, not necessarily to me, but he's a fine writer, you know. But, um, but, uh, for me, language, for example, when uh, one of the things I'll be doing when I, when I uh, go back from here is next month, the Zebald Lecture on Literary Translation, in which language, uh, you know, historically, uh, people have made fun of Indian speaking English, forgetting how ridiculous they might sound if they try to speak Hindi or Telugu <laughs> or anything, you know? And so for me, language, I have a slightly different approach to, to the beauty of people who try and express themselves in other languages. They stretch and bend the language and the grace of their mistakes expands language and makes it beautiful, you know? So for me, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness is, is a book imagined in several languages, even if it's written in English. So, um, but, I, but I do think that Rushdie, uh, I, I really admire his ambitions, his literary ambitions, you know. <laughs> Why is everybody laughing? Before we hear Arundhati Roy read, Could we both thank Viet and Arundhati for tonight? Thank you. <laughs> so this is going to be a very, very short reading, just to uh, give you a slightly more... Uh, the book is not just only politics. So this is a chapter called The Tenant. The spotted owlet on the streetlight, ducked and bobbed with the delicacy and immaculate manners of a Japanese businessman. He had an unobstructed view through the window of the small bare room and the odd bare woman on the bed. She had an unobstructed view of him too. Some nights she bobbed back and said, Moshi, Moshi, which was all the Japanese she knew. Even indoors, the walls radiated a bullying, unyielding heat. The slow ceiling fan stirred the scorched air, layering it with fine, cindery dust. The room showed signs of celebration. 
The balloons tied to the window grill bumped into each other, desultorily softened and shriveled by the heat. In the center, on a low painted stool, was a cake with bright strawberry icing, sugar flowers, a candle with a charred wick, a matchbox, and a few used matchsticks. On the cake, it said, Happy birthday, Miss Jibin. The cake had been cut, a small piece eaten. The icing had melted and dribbled onto the silver foil covered cardboard cake base. Ants were making off with crumbs larger than themselves. Black ants, pink crumbs. The baby, whose birthday and baptism ceremonies had been simultaneously celebrated and successfully concluded, was fast asleep. Her kidnapper, who went by the name of S. Tilotma, was awake and concentrating. She could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling. Coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, their hair and nails kept growing like starlight traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died. Like cities, fizzy, effervescent, simulating the illusion of life while the planet they had plundered died around them. She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on Earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. A weevil philosopher with a grave manner and a sharp moustache was teaching a class, reading aloud from a book. Admiring young weevils strained to catch each word that spilled from his wise weevil lips. Nietzsche believed that if pity were to become the core of ethics, misery would become contagious and happiness an object of suspicion. The youngsters scratched away on their little notepads. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, believed that pity is and ought to be the supreme weevil virtue. But long before them, Socrates asked the key question, why should we be moral? He had lost a leg in weevil World War IV, this professor, and carried a cane. His remaining five legs were in excellent condition. Airbrush, airbrush graffiti sprayed on the back wall of his classroom said, evil weevils always make the cut. Other creatures crowded into the already crowded classroom. An alligator with a human skin purse, a grasshopper with good intentions, a fish on a fast, a fox with a flag, a maggot with a manifesto, a neocon newt, an icon iguana, a communist cow, an owl with an alternative, a lizard on TV. Hello and welcome. You're watching Lizard News at nine. There's been a blizzard on Lizard Island. The baby was the beginning of something. This much the kidnapper knew. Her bones had whispered this to her that night. The said night, the concerned night, the, the aforementioned night, 
the night hereinafter referred to as the night, when she made her move on the pavement, and her bones were nothing if not reliable informants. The baby was Miss Jubin returned. Returned, that is, not to her, Miss Jubin the first was never hers, but to the world. Miss Jubin the second, when she was grown to be a lady, would settle accounts and square the books. Miss Jubin would turn the tide. There was hope yet for the evil, weevil world. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was Arundhati Roy speaking with Viet Thanh Nguyen. Arundhati Roy's books, including the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, are available at your local NYPL branch or on our app Simply E, as are all of Viet Thanh Nguyen's books, including his most recent one, The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support from Riker Schnorr and myself.